Hello and welcome back to the Drift Proof Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Cipriano. Today is very special. It's episode 10. Woo woo. So finally getting to the double digits. Um, everything's been going great. For anybody who might be new, I just want to do a quick recap. This podcast is literally made and designed to put information out that's psychological and also talking to different people in my life, figure out what they do that's meaningful, that sustains them literally sustains them from becoming nihilistic or depressed. And then we do a ton of psychology along the way. So today I'm very excited because I am speaking with social worker, Sophia Constantine. Sophia um, and I work at the hospital together, the psych hospital, and she is just amazing. She has worked in so many different settings. She's worked with kids, couples, adults. She's worked in substance abuse with veterans, inpatient, outpatient, partial day hospitals, and in schools. Um, I'm missing something, I'm sure. She's worked in so many different places and she's just an incredible resource in this field. So today we're going to talk all about social work, like unforgivably social work, and this is awesome. So if anyone's ever wondered, what does a social worker actually do? Like I literally had this question going into this podcast and I've worked with her for eight months (laughs) and I'm looking into the field too. So this was a really good episode. Honestly, it was educational for me as well, and hopefully it'll be educational for you guys. So uh, we're going to talk about the education of social workers and they, you can get a bachelor's, a master's or a doctorate. We don't really touch on the doctorate but pretty much a lot of them stop at the master's and then they can do counseling. We are also going to talk about Sophia's history with all of the fields she's worked in, what she has learned, what she has found that's good about the field and mental health and what isn't good. This episode, honestly, I just could not believe we got this much valuable information about this field out in 80 minutes. It was amazing. It's so smooth of an episode and it was just great. I also want to throw in too, if you guys haven't checked out my Instagram, I hate to plug it like this, but I need to uh, <laughs> make sure that that's growing. I literally have as many posts posts as I do followers right now. And that is not all right. So if you guys could help me and just tell your friends like it, I put like one post a day out. So I'm not going to pester you, but they're always great informational and they're related to psychology and finding meaning in your life. So I can't see how that's going to hurt you to follow that Instagram. Um, And then also at every episode at the end of it, if you look in the show notes, I do put resources. So today I do have the social worker code of ethics at the bottom of the resource page. I have Sophia's Instagram. I have psychologytoday.com if you want to find a therapist. And then I also have some uh, information about gun laws if you've been inpatient psychiatric hospital care. Um, The main point I want to throw out before I start this episode today, you're going to hear it along the episode, but I thought it was very important. So I do want to say and reiterate, if you ever go into a psychiatric hospital, you have the choice to sign voluntary if if you didn't walk in voluntarily to begin with, which is like 99% of people. So you have three days to sign voluntary with the court. That means that you're consenting to the treatment the doctor is going to recommend. It does not mean you can voluntarily leave. It does not mean you're going to have all the control over your treatment while you're there. But if you sign voluntary, then you won't go to court and it won't go on your record. And if you don't have that on your record, then your gun laws won't be messed up. And then also the police cannot see if you've been to court for psychiatric evaluation. So I just want to point that out. I literally have goosebumps talking about it because you're going to stay at the hospital longer if you don't go voluntary. You're also going to mess up your legal standing as someone who does not have a record of being inpatient at a psychiatric hospital. So there is a stigma in psychology. So to overlook that is foolish. I don't agree with the stigmatization, but you know, if you can keep it off your court record, that's a really good thing. I cannot tell you how valuable that advice is. And if you ever find yourself in the position of going inpatient, it's not the worst thing in the world. Make the most of it. Sign voluntary. Don't let it go on your record. Um, And hopefully if you need the help, you'll get the help there. So thank you so much. Without any further ado, this episode is just jam-packed full of information on social work with Sophia Considine. You guys enjoy.
Welcome back to the Drift Proof Podcast, everyone. As always, I'm your host, Andrew, and today I have another special guest on. Her name is Sophia Considine. Yeah, yeah. Considine? Yeah. All right, want to say hi? Hi. So Sophia and I work at the hospital together. She's actually a social worker. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's doing kind of what I'm inspiring to do, and we're just going to talk about social work today, her life, um, anything she wants to add that she thinks helpful for anyone to hear that's information to get out there. Oh, Yeah. So do you want to start off with, um, I guess, why are you, why are you in the field that you're in? That's an important question. So I didn't directly kind of go into social work. So I really started out really wanting to do, um, like psychology and specifically like working with like survivors of crime. So I've always loved like law and order SVU. And so Dr. Wong, incredible. (laughs) Um, Dr. Wong was like my dream job. And so, I mean, that was my dream since like middle school. And so when I started in college, I knew I was like a psychology major and that that's what I wanted to do. And then trying to figure out how I was going to like get to work with like survivors directly. Um, I ended up having the major in social work because at MSU, um, social work couldn't be like your secondary, it had to be your primary. Okay. And then ended up loving it and working with people directly, which is what I wanted to do. Um, so you got a bachelor's in social work. Yep. First. So I had my bachelor's oh. in social work from MSU and my graduate so degree. So what could you have done with the bachelor's if you would have stopped there? Just like curiosity. Basically, most of it is like case management. So um, no direct like therapy or anything like that. But a lot of case management, you're kind of inadvertently doing therapy. Okay. Um, so most of it's case management. Almost every agency needs case management, especially like Medicaid agencies because Medicaid requirements in order to get medications, you have to have case management. And then what is case management? Uh, case management, you're kind of, I view it as like you are the like link between multiple different agencies. So that could be medication, that could be outpatient therapy, housing, physical medicine, like all these different things. So when I did case management, a lot of it was like making sure that they were getting their medication appointments scheduled, making sure that they had access to resources, um, scheduling them for outpatient. So try, you're kind of like the pinpoint link between a bunch of different things. Okay. Is it kind of administration work? A lot of it is. Most of social work is like paperwork and stuff like that. So a lot of case management is for me, like when I did it with kids, I viewed it as like mini therapy. So I'd bring games, I'd bring activities, um, and kind of, especially when you, when I, where I was working, um, out in Genesee County, like it's a lot of like very exhausted parents. And so I would just be like, listen, like, let me take the kids for an hour and this is what I will do with them. And then make sure like, that's cool. Actually. Like, do they have an IEP through school? Like, are they getting ready for that appointment? Do I need to go with them? Do they have, um, clothes? Do they need resources for clothes? What do they need and how can I get them resources? Because the difficulty is so many people need have different needs, but we don't know what resources are out there. And especially like at the hospital, that's where we see a lot of with a child adolescent unit too. Okay. So that's what I was going to ask you too, I guess, would the bachelor prepare you into finding resources for people? Kind of. So basically your bachelor's is really, you are learning how to work with people. And then with your bachelor's, with any degree in social work, you are doing a, um, field study. So like a field program and like an internship. So that's where you're really doing a lot of hands-on. Most of social work learning is hands-on. I could have really done without almost all of my classes besides like specific graduate classes, but learned most of my stuff through my internship and mostly learned what I didn't want to work with, like what populations I was not interested in. Okay. So resources wise, you're really looking at county by county, like what is available and what needs to be available too. Okay. So what populations would you not want to work with and why? So like I, what, what population options are there? Yeah. So you can really work with anything because case management, especially social work can go into anything. Um, cause social work is a pretty wide, um, like job and profession. Um, so I did like my first internship 
at a um, homeless shelter for veterans um, in Lansing. And I learned there, I really found it very difficult to work with the homeless population or unhoused because there's so few resources so that I got really burned out and like kind of it was you're seeing a lot of like cyclical and recidivism into shelters because there isn't a lot of resources. Okay. Um, substance use is also very difficult for me to work with um, just because it's not something that I personally have an experience with. Mm-hmm. And I find that I work better and I'm more passionate about populations that I have experience with. And substance use is something that I'm very fortunate not to have an experience with. And so I don't have that firsthand knowledge, which I feel like is what really I utilize a lot of the time. Yeah, I think so. And so I can't use that. And so I feel out of depth because I'm trying to relate to people and trying to not be feel and project myself as better than because that's the last thing you want to do with any patient any client environment yeah yeah exactly and without knowing a lot and not having that experience i feel like i can't relate as bad okay. as well well that totally makes sense yeah. with the veterans too would you find that was difficult in that environment veterans in general even if they weren't homeless um that i actually have experienced with i have fair few family members that are right. in um the army specifically um and still are it was mostly just how few resources there are for veterans specifically. Okay. We're going to touch on that. Yeah. Cause I want to see what could be better. I'm looking at social work, Yeah, but I want to make sure that I can actually provide services to people. So really fast. What, is, what classes you said the classwork wasn't that useful. I've looked into social work classes and they give you like macro micro and like kind of basic terms and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you actually learn in the master's degree? Like what does that course look like? Mm-hmm. What classes were actually beneficial? What weren't? So, um, my program specifically, um, I know Wayne state is different. I did mine at Michigan state. Um, Wayne state, you kind of can specify different, um, pathways at my, at Michigan state. Um, you can do different certificate programs. So in addition to like your general masters, you, d- you will graduate with a certificate. So okay. like if you want to do school, social work, in order to get certified by Department of Education, you have to have a school social work certification. So there's kind of different pathways. So I know at MSU, there was um, like a school social work one. Um, there was one specifically like for families in foster care. Um, there might've been like a medical one. Um, there was one specifically working for veterans. So there are different pathways. Classes that I really enjoyed um, and like felt were helpful were like um, family studies and like doing family therapy because even if you have no intention of doing like family or group therapy, you're going to end up doing it. And so yeah, many I'm things sure. Being around people in, in that position, you're going to be doing that. Yeah. And especially like if you work with kids, you're going to end up working with parents too. If you work with adults, a lot of family stressors are happening too. So you're always going to end up working with families. So that one was really helpful. Um, one working with like couples and doing couples therapy was super interesting too. Um, Cause again, it's something that I, never saw myself doing. So just having that experience, of course you have to do like the general like statistics classes like that. You do. I didn't know that they did that in the social work program too. Yeah. So it was okay. just one class. It was super easy. Um, in my program. And I also will say I had a phenomenal cohort. So I did a three-year program that was part-time. Okay. Um, cause I knew I could not do a full-time program. I did have the opportunity to do a full-time program at Grand Valley and Western, but had already had a job lined up, had housing lined up and moving um, away from like my partner. It was like way too stressful to me. Yeah. So I knew I could not go straight in cause I went straight from undergrad to grad school. 
So I had a phenomenal cohort and really like are the reason that so many of us got through is very small. Um, there was only about like 17 of us. And so we were really close, like all the way through because we were with each other for three years. But you also like, I love my grad program because you had like the opportunity to take really interesting classes. So like I took a class on cults and like groupthink, cool, which was like super interesting. Cause like I love true crime and stuff like that. So, um, that was really interesting. I know there was a class specifically focused on like the zombie apocalypse. So it kind of like, if like you were like supposed to try and live through a zombie apocalypse, cause it's looking at like, like basically fight versus flight, like sur- basic survival caveman brain. So that was really interesting. I heard, um, there were classes specifically focused on like working with veterans and there are so many different seminars that you could do. So I did a weekend class that was focusing on ACEs. So adverse childhood experiences for kids and adults. So, um, that was great because only like half of our class that was there was in the master's program. You can continue, like do your continuing education or CEUs, um, that you have to have when you're licensed. So it's just people continuing their education. So that was really interesting too. Okay. So it actually sounds like more psychology than I thought it would be. Um, yeah. that's what I, I just wasn't sure. Like you hear social work and it, it is a big umbrella term. Mm-hmm. So that's, I wasn't, I was looking at LPCs and doing yeah. clinical psychology masters mm-hmm. and that corners you into literally one corner of doing counseling your whole life. And like you said, it doesn't take so many insurances. So, yeah. Um, I don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and also like talking to like the doctors that we work with, the doctor that I specifically work with was like, I, I prefer working with social workers and LPCs. I don't prefer working with psychologists because a lot of psychologists want to be psychiatrists and then weren't able to do med school. Okay. So he's, he's like, in my experience, like psychologists are, um, have a lot really big egos and can sometimes be very difficult to work with. Okay. I can but see that. Even when you're doing like, um, like doctors of psychology too, like the, like residential programs are typically run by like psychology doctorates. And that's when you're like really doing like running programs too. Okay. Yeah. Um, that actually is cool. Like I'm looking at social work pretty mm-hmm. heavily right now, but I think I'm going to do just a full two year and get it done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that was like, that's what I should have done or done like a year long program because I had my undergraduate in um, social work, but getting it done. I, for me, I know I learn best not in school and being hands-on. So for me, I knew I was going to get the most out of my program while working full-time and doing my internship and having classes. So you're doing case management for the whole three years that you were getting your... Yeah. So I actually worked at a school for my first um, about year and a half, maybe first full year. Because in my program, the first year you did, it was just classes. And then the second and third year, you had fewer classes and then an internship. Okay. Um, so it was a different internship each year. I worked at a school. I worked at a charter school district. Um, really enjoyed it. I always worked enjoyed working with kids, but was not qualified to do my job. And no one really knew that okay. until we found out. So that I didn't have that job anymore. So you need a master's, I'm assuming, to do... School social work, yes. Okay. Anything with IEPs, um, 504s, which are all like law enforcing education plans, mm-hmm. you have to have a, be certified by Department of Education. That makes sense. So. Yeah. But one of our previous co-workers um, who left the hospital, they started a grant program in a different school district where you didn't have to be a special ed social worker. You could be a general ed social worker. Okay. So hopefully a lot more schools are doing that because there are a lot of kids who need social work interventions that don't qualify for IEPs. So what would that look like in a school setting where, where you had a case, what would you go to the family and try to mm-hmm. go for the whole holistic approach of their whole life? And so it- I would try to, um, my school was very unique because we were 
I kind of call it like a hippy dippy school. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It was like a full charter school district. So it was from kindergarten to high school. Okay. But there was not grades, both like grade level and like grade in classes, like ABCs. Everybody worked at their own pace. So like you would have like classrooms that were like first, second grade equivalent and you could spend up to three years in there. So that's interesting actually. So we had a lot of kids who had been expelled or suspended or asked not to return from previous schools because they were having a lot of behavior issues. And when you are doing an IEP or a 504, kids have to qualify academically, not just behaviorally. There really is not a bit, just a behavior IEP. So for my school, you were, we were still able to do interventions, both academic and behavior, even if they didn't qualify for an IEP, which was really nice, but not many schools can do that. We were a very small school, both, elementary, middle and high school. So that was really nice that we were able to do it. And a lot of it, especially working with like the little ones, it's all pushing into the classroom. So like you were working hands on, like helping them utilize their coping skills, helping them utilize like fidgets and calm down corners and all these different things, because these very small kids are already having a crazy amount of trauma and don't know how to cope with that. Okay. So that goes kind of in the next point. So mm-hmm. the reason I'm drawn to social work is because you can do one-on-one therapy. It's what is it now? LW something. Yeah. Uh, like an MSW or like a, it's an MSW and there's, I wrote it down one minute. Wait, LCSW. Yes. LCSW. So licensed clinical social worker. Yes. Yeah. So is that also a master's and you have to get clinical hours pretty much? Yeah. So it's kind of confusing with licensing. So you can become, yes, <laughs> it's very confusing. Oh my God. It's the, one of the most confusing things in the world. So basically when you are licensed, you are either in a limited license, which is what I am right now or a full license. Okay. You can get into, I think you can get into like becoming a clinical social worker, but then you can only take the test for micro work and you can't do both. And then I think there's with macro, you have to test separately. I really don't know because I never wanted to do macro. Okay. So it can be very confusing. Um, and I know like if you are an LL, like an LCSW, so like a licensed clinical social worker, you uh-huh. can't do any macro work. But if you think of your like an LMSW, you can. Okay. And then can you still do counseling as an MSW? Yes. You always oh. can do counseling as an MSW because that's so, your master's in social work. So what would be the benefit of getting an LCSW? I've never really seen it. I think it might be like, because each state is licensed different. Okay. So that's a difficulty. So like if I ever want to move, I have to figure out how to transfer my license. Which is frustrating to me. Uh, yes. Like with, oh. with RNs, you can move, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, they do travel nursing and they do it without yeah, more degrees. So absolutely. And so I know Michigan, once you have your, like your full license, cause that's with taking your exam. I know Michigan has, from my understanding, has one of the harder exams. So it's easier to transfer that to other states. Okay then someone transfer into Michigan yeah, from my understanding. Sense. But I've never seen or never really was explained the benefit of being an LCSW versus like an LMSW. Okay. Yeah. Same thing with the LPC. If yeah. you could become a social worker and you have all that broad spectrum of what you can do, why would you corner yourself mm-hmm. into a market? You know? Mm-hmm. So in, in LPCs really like from my understanding, like I have friends who are LPCs and did my same internship with me. Okay. Like we're, we're, we're interns where I was working. And that's when you really want to do like individual or family therapy. Okay. So I want to ask you, you've done school, social work, Mm -hmm. and then you've done obviously inpatient. Have you done outpatient? I have done outpatient through like through my internship. Okay. So how was that? Like, what is that experience? And I want to talk about inpatient too, Mm -hmm. and then kind of what is right and wrong about the system. So what is, want to start an inpatient or outpatient? Uh, Let's do outpatient. Okay. So how is outpatient social work? Like, what are you doing? How are you helping people? So I was at a 
clinic that spe- like specifically serviced um, survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence okay. and child abuse. And I worked on the adult side. It was the first time I've ever worked with adults specifically. I've always worked with kids. And unfortunately, I didn't have the best experience because of my supervisors there. Okay. They kind of really threw me into the deep end as someone who has had no experience working with adults. I truly received no training for individual therapy, which then... I knew was putting my clients at a disadvantage sure. and then was reprimanded for asking for these things, which really sucked. It really taught me a lot for like group therapy, how I f- structure a lot of my groups at the hospital now is like based off of things that I learned through that. Okay. But it's just, a, it's, it's a totally different beast than inpatient. It's even like a different beast than like when I did Medicaid case management, because when you do Medicaid case management, you're really pushing them to participate because it's a Medicaid requirement. Okay. For the clients that I was working with, they were there because they wanted to be there. That's actually awesome. Yeah, which was great because, you know, and we had a lot like very strict, like, okay, if someone misses two appointments in a row, we're assuming you don't want services anymore Mm -hmm. and we're going to close you out. Um, As opposed to when I was uh, in um, Genesee County, I'm trying to keep people open because I know it's not the kids, it's the parent who is not bringing them to appointments or is not home for appointments. When it's kids, right. Yeah, absolutely. So for adults, it was a lot different. Um, Some of my clients were in our shelter that was there. So like they were super easily accessible, which was nice. Some were court ordered um, because of like child custody cases. But that was very interesting and very different because I was doing a lot of like therapy focusing on surviving domestic violence. And I had clients that were both still in relationships with their abuser and that were out of that relationship and like were actively in court with them. And then you're literally thrown in the situation too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So one of the great things that really made me interested was they do a lot of court advocacy. So like if someone is testifying against their abuser like we were there to support them. We were there to see if PPOs were granted or personal, uh, personal protection orders. We were there to help them file PPOs where we were there doing like forensic interviewing for kids. If there was an allegation okay. of child sexual conduct. Wow. That's actually, su- that's cool. I don't want to yeah. say cool, but it is cool. But it's interesting. Cause that's, it was really interesting to see because it's, then it's um, like the interviewer who was, I mean, great at what she did. She, I, I didn't personally like her, but I mean, she was phenomenal at her job. Like I will never doubt that seeing her interview kids. Um, and then you have police officers and like CPS. Oh my goodness. Oh, the CPS. Oh my God. Um, (laughs) so that was like super interesting, but like we also had like a therapy dog that would go for if kids were testifying, like I had a client whose kid was actively testifying against their dad and the dog was there fully to like support them. So like, that it's a really it's a genuinely interesting agency it's mm-hmm. a really really cool agency they do a lot of child therapy group therapy they do play therapy which is which is a whole nother thing that you can be certified in which is super interesting but it's just so different because like i said people want to be there they want to actively participate that's what i'm looking for yeah and i know it's everyone says don't pick the low-hanging fruit you know you should get to the people who are impatient who don't want help and but it's hard like with therapy mm-hmm. too one of my favorite psychologists said you cannot do court order therapy and make it effective mm-hmm. unless it's just by some, you know, God's grace, it's yeah. not going to work. And that is the difficult thing, especially like where we work because people are not voluntary. So we're jumping on to inpatient. Yes. Yeah. And so it's actually something that I've talked with my own outpatient therapist because she um, used to work at a um, inpatient rehab. Okay. And she would have patients that she would have to refer to us. And she, I think she interviewed or got hired and turned down the job at our hospital because you hear so many th- bad things about inpatient hospitals because yeah. no one wants to be there. 
you're never going to get flying Yelp reviews from someone who is court ordered right. for ser- services. Right. And everyone says, look at your Google reviews. I'm like, who's reviewing it? People yes. who've been forced to go there. By Absolutely. Court, so of course they don't want to be there. Absolutely. And I try and explain that to people, but like, it's just, a, it's, it's such a hard thing because you really have to put so much of yourself into it mm-hmm. to try and half make up what other people can't. That's And that's what I would say too. The biggest hurdle that we have at our job is making people not hate you. Oh, 100%. <laughs> Just because they're there. A hundred percent. Once you can break that, they're actually okay. Yeah. But. And that's something that I really struggled with when I did home-based case management because I'm literally going to people's houses and I would have patients that would move on me and I would be going to like rat infested homes not knowing that they had moved. Yeah, I heard it's dangerous actually. It, and it worked in like mostly downtown Flint. So I had a lot of families who like very much like watched out for me and would like make sure that I was okay and like getting to my car Okay. And I had other families that absolutely hated me and would avoid me. And so it took me a long time to like learn that I can only go halfway Mm -hmm. and a patient or a family and a client has, and mostly parents, it's not the kid ever. Right. They have to meet me that other 50%. But inpatient, you really can't do that. You have to be the number one person doing it. Could you, in his best experience or knowledge Mm -hmm. as you can, what would differ somebody from being outpatient or inpatient? Where would they draw that line? Like I've, I guess mm-hmm. inpatient, I always know if they were pretty much if you go to the hospital and you're mm-hmm. a danger to yourself or others, or someone thinks you are with license, you're going inpatient. Mm-hmm. But when would that become outpatient or what, you know, mm-hmm. is outpatient always after inpatient or. So that's a, it's a, it's a very difficult question to answer because okay. there are so many times where you are looking at someone who has the resources, like they have outpatient therapy, they have outpatient psychiatry and something's just wrong with their medications. Okay. So I mean, we've had patients in the past where they're like, my meds just weren't strong enough and my voices came back and that immediately brought them in. But we have also have patients who don't have the resources and don't know how to get those resources, especially on the child adolescent unit. That was the biggest thing when I saw when I was an intern there is parents just don't know what resources they have. And so when your kid is saying they're going to hurt themselves or saying they want to hurt other people or actively trying to hurt themselves, you're number one, you're immediately going to the hospital Yeah, because you don't, you have nowhere else to take them. That's same with the, the adults too. A lot of guys absolutely. in my unit, 18 to 30 would be there mm-hmm. because their mom didn't know what to do when they yeah. were in crisis. So absolutely. I mean, they, you know, if you're an inpatient and someone has sent you there that, you know, it's cause they love you. Yeah. So oh, you're allowed to be mad, but they love you. So you should yes. be happy you have that, that relationship. Oh, hundred percent. And I, and I have told people, I mean, I remember specifically a patient who, hated her daughter because she had petitioned her so many times and I had to have like a sit down talk with her. And like, I got emotional with this person who I, and I always try and have good, strong boundaries with my patients, but it's it, sometimes it's super, super difficult, mm-hmm. but I had to sit her down and be like, listen, I have never seen any patient's children care this much about their family. And the fact where the, her kids were calling me every day, seeing how she was doing Aww. and like asking how her medications are going. And mom felt very violated and felt like this boundary and trust had been broken, but seeing it from another perspective where I've seen patients, families give up on them because they're in and out of the hospital so much Mm -hmm. and aggressive to family and they don't know what to do. And so you have, I mean, at the end of the day, it sucks, but sometimes you do have to choose your own mental health and physical health over the ones that you love. And just to try to explain to her, like I have never seen someone's family that loved them and cared for them and was worried about them this much. And it wasn't until that moment where she was like, Oh yeah, like they are trying to do what's best for me. I don't think that's what's best. I don't think I need medications, but they are coming at it from the best angle that they can. Mm -hmm. 
And so like when you are looking at like inpatient versus outpatient, there are a lot of things that we defer to outpatient. Any um, like when we look at our treatment plans, any substance use, we have to defer to outpatient. Okay. Risk of victimization. So any like abuse, neglect, domestic violence, um, surviving, you have to defer to outpatient because it is therapeutically neglectful to open up that wound and open up that relationship for someone that you are not going to be seeing long-term because when you are thinking about a length of stay of seven to 10 days, that's enough time to barely get into stuff and never heal it. And that's one of the worst things you can do in a therapeutic relationship. It's one of the first things that we learn not to do in a therapeutic relationship in school. So what do you think the benefits and the negative and the, I don't know, the cons of inpatient care are Mm -hmm. in general? And then kind of, I'll ask you more questions. Yeah, you're good. So I think the mental health system in Michigan in general is not phenomenal. Uh, I don't think many states have phenomenal mental health Mm -mm. systems because I, and I don't know enough about history and politics to think about like, do this full comparison of like state hospitals versus private hospitals. Like, Um, When all of these like big state hospitals were decommissioned, the abandonment era. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know enough about that to make calls on what, what has been best. Right. But I think one of the biggest, and I don't think it's addressed in the the best way possible, but I mean, when you're looking short term, a big pro of hospitalization is you are short term medication stabilization. Mm -hmm. That's what we are. And as someone who also has psychiatry appointments and has medication that I'm prescribed, I'm not getting in for a month to see my psychiatrist. I'm seeing him tomorrow and I was rescheduled for a week out and running out of meds. So especially when you're looking at Medicaid agencies where you they have so many clientele, if there's something wrong with your medications, you're lucky to see them in that month. So when we're looking at a lot of medications, so like a lot of psychosis, bipolar, borderline, things like that depression, anxiety, a lot of it is a met is a chemical imbalance. And so those need to be short term, not short term, but those need to be immediate can be immediately addressed that they couldn't be immediately addressed in an outpatient. Okay. Do you think that sometimes it isn't, it isn't a chemical imbalance and it might be like environmental factors or some severe trauma or something just out of curiosity, because I've been doing a mm-hmm. lot of research on personality disorders and bipolar even Mm -hmm. mood disorders and everything. So I was curious what your take is on that. So I think it's both. I don't think any, I don't think either for, um, I'm going to say 80% of things. I don't think a hundred percent therapy or a hundred percent medications is going to work the best as a combination is going to work. All right. So how I've always viewed it and how I view it for myself is my, my medications and medications in general are going to get me at a, the best baseline possible to then address things that are behavioral because medications are never going to address behavioral issues. They're never going to address me being hyperverbal, right. but my medications will help me be help me when I'm manic. So they're, they're addressing two different things. So when you're looking at like depression and self-harm medications, aren't going to stop a kid self-harming or self an adult, stop an adult self-harming. They are going to help with, their lows not being as low and then therapy is going to help them utilize their coping skills and use regrounding techniques, um, for when they do want to self-harm. Okay. So I don't think either is a hundred percent effective unless you're looking at, I mean, people that fully like are, I always call them like, like pleasantly depressed, pleasantly anxious where you're getting by 
day to day. I've never heard that. Yes. Yeah, so I'd say I, functional, maybe. Fa- functional. Yeah. Because I always <laughs> pleasantly. say pleasantly psychotic. But like. Some of them are pleasantly psychotic. Yeah. But like. <laughs> I'm not be like pleasant. Like I'm like, you're, you're getting through day to day. You have like. And everyone's depression, everyone's mental health is 100% different. Mm-hmm. For a majority of my life, I have been pleasantly depressed. Like I was getting through, I was not super actively self-harming. Was I passively suicidal? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I was not taking, and I wasn't taking medications because I wasn't to that point yet. Mine was more, mine was behavioral. Could medications have helped me? Absolutely. Could therapy have helped me? Absolutely. All right. So I don't, like, I don't think everything is 100% or 0%. I don't know. I mean, it's the first thing you learn in psychology school is, Nature versus nurture. Yeah. And there's not one definite no. answer on either pole. So Yeah, absolutely. And I mean. I just, my, sorry. I, I always say I want to hit patients before they need the meds mm-hmm. or after the ones they need it have already kicked in. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. why I don't want to do nursing. That's why I don't want to do psychiatry. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's where you're going to get a lot of outpatient therapy, especially hospital discharges, because they are discharging the point where they are medically stable, where mm-hmm. their medications are stable and they've kicked in. That's where our length of stay is so long. Yeah. Um. So that therapy, individual therapy can be effective because individual therapy is never going to be effective to someone who is actively psychotic, right. actively or they're so suicidal, depressed. Yeah, they're, they're right. that you're not reaching your like ADLs, like, but just like, med- like it's like, that's where those medications are trying to get you to like a baseline where you can be the individual therapy can be effective. So do you think that we could do more in the inpatient facility to where we could get them outpatient more successfully and, and better off just out of curiosity? I think a lot of things could be better. Um, I think that, I mean, for social work, we discharge every patient with a psychiatry appointment and and, and a therapy appointment. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. So if they're not already linked to one of those things, then we do an intake. Or we'll schedule them for an intake. The difficulty with that is when you have a lot of patients that are Medicaid, um, you're going through community mental health, um, you can get them an intake within a week, which is phenomenal, but then they're not seeing a doctor for a month. Okay. Because, again, you just have such full books. Um, it's the same thing when I worked for a Medicaid agency. Um, you were seeing the doctor every six weeks maybe. Is there anything we can do for patients that's – more so teaching them how to be self-autonomous, I guess. Um, Is that part of social work? It's, I always think it's like providing resources. Okay. So I will, so like I have a patient who discharged today. I got, I had them an in a therapy appointment and a psychiatry appointment. All okay. right. I also gave her resources if she wanted to do a PHP program or partial hospitalization program. Okay. I, if she didn't like her therapist, I got her resources for other ones or her psychiatrist. I got her resources for other ones. Um, you're doing that a lot with like substance use. So if a patient has a history of substance use, I'm always trying to provide resources for AA and NA in the area. Am I going to hold their hand and bring them to it? No. Right. Um, but also a huge part of our ethics and social work is, is providing a patient and a client with a right to self-determinate. And that self-determination is a huge part of social work because you are never going to get a patient who is a hundred percent on board if you are forcing them to do everything. That's a problem with inpatient. Yeah, too. absolutely. That's why I didn't do men- any mental health for myself because my mom was pushing it for me. Okay. Even though I needed it. Um, so there's, there's, we have this very fine line of letting patients have the self-determination and wanting them to have the self-determination that they want to have say in their own treatment. But also when you're looking at patients who m- may not be 
and I, it, it's such a, it's such a fine line because, and it's something that I struggle with myself, like thinking about my job is like, how do we make that call if a patient can make that determination? Yeah. And I think it's, I think a lot of the times we have to, and we can't, and we're kind of stuck, but at the end of the day, once a patient is out of the hospital, we're not checking every day to make sure that they're taking their medications, even if they're court ordered. Um, do I think court orders are phenomenal? No. Um, do I think they help in the hospital? Yes. But it's a, it's a very, very, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place 90% of the time. Okay. Yeah. So if you ever, why, I want to try to get in social work. I'm like trying to figure out what I'm look, aiming at, mm -hmm. right? The whole drift proof thing, like don't drift through life, have a plan. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to have a plan of mental health. Mm -hmm. I want to, is it possible one day if I'm a social worker, LCSW or whatever, mm -hmm. MSW to get other sort of social workers together and try to apply for federal grant money and have our own business going where we're doing counseling and have our own services and mm -hmm. like not our own hospital maybe, but like our own outpatient facility. Is, mm -hmm. that, is that a possibility? I think it is. I think they take a very long time. I'm so, sure. So the, um, where I previously had an internship, that was all grant funded. Okay. So we did not chart. It wasn't even through insurance. Awesome. That's yeah. exactly what I mean. It was for. just survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse. We, they, I mean, everything they did was grant funded. The shelter doing, um, sexual assault and nursing exams, doing court advocacy. We were also, we had, um, volunteers who were on call all the time. So if someone was in the hospital getting a sexual assault exam, we were there like that is all grant funded, but those take so long. And I think that's when you're looking at this over super overarching idea of how much money is put into mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, because I mean, those are the ideal situations where you don't have to charge Medicaid. Right. Um, or you don't have to charge insurances. Um, but they're so few and far between, then you're kind of thinking of like, why doesn't it happen more? Mm -hmm. Okay. That's what I'm trying to work out in my mm -hmm. head. I'm trying to put myself in a position where I'll have as much, I don't want to say power authority because those are kind of nasty words, yeah. but um, influence to help people yeah. in a genuine way in, in a way that I think is right. Because mm -hmm. the inpatient is, like you said, it's medication stabilization. So mm -hmm. anyone going to a psych unit who doesn't expect that, that's what you're going to get mm -hmm. in inpatient. But mm -hmm. And I think it's hard because like emergency rooms are never fully honest about what they are people not are going into. No, absolutely not. I mean, when you're telling people that they're going to be out in 72 hours, which is not true mm -mm. when you're telling people they have the right to refute medication, which they do, but then there's going to be a court order. And luckily our doctors are usually pretty flexible. Like if a patient and I've sat in there when a patient's like, I do not feel comfortable taking this medication. What other options do I have? Because you do what I mean, when you're looking at medic, like anti-anxiety medications, antidepressant, mood stabilizers, antipsychotics, these are umbrellas of multiple different medications. Mm -hmm. So, and you do have different medications that are, have been around for different years. I mean, when you're looking at like Haldol, Depakote, those have been around for forever. And so they can be pretty strong. And so, a lot of our doctors are very flexible and like, okay, you're not, if you're not comfortable taking this one, then what we can work, we can work on that. We can work with that because the doctors don't want it to be a fight either, but our doctors are also having, they can have bad days. And I think patients and staff forget that too. I forgot it the majority of the time when I first started working with mm -hmm. my doctor, because sometimes he doesn't have the best bedside manner, but when he does have those good days and is really, really working with patients, because he also knows at the end of the day, a patient is going to fight their medications if they're not on board with them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, do I think that everything would be more efficient and more therapeutic in the hospital if we could provide individual therapy? Absolutely. Is that something that we're ever going to be able to staff? Absolutely not. Uh, right. 
And it, it is a private business the one we work for, so you know, money's number one. That's what you do in mm-hmm. liability. Yeah. Not in a, not in a pessimistic way, but that is what a business is about. So. Absolutely. And I mean, we're working in a hospital where we ver- barely have enough social workers to get super manageable caseloads. How many caseloads do you have it normally, by the way? So if everyone is not on vacation and we are at a reasonable number on our unit, you're looking about 12 to 15, 15 oh, at the super, super high end. Oh, that's actually reasonable then. Yeah. Um, if I'm just on my unit, if I've had to cover other units, then it could be busted up to 17, 19. Okay. Um, but we also have contingent social workers that are there to help that are just running groups doing assessments. Um, so that is also a huge help. Um, so what does an assessment look like? What is that actually, mm-hmm. what's, what's the point of an assessment? Yeah. Especially in an inpatient one. Cause you're not having a ton of time to talk to them. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a biopsychosocial assessment. Cool. Um, Love that approach. Yes. So no spiritual, no spiritual. Well, actually, no, there is a spiritual part. I lied. Um, so it's part of the overarching assessment. So there's a nursing part, social work part, and then the rec therapy part. Cool. So it is all, and then the doctor does, is that what the, the psych treatment eval. plan is? We use the psych eval and the, the biopsychosocial assessments to formulate our treatment plan. Okay. So this nursing assessment gets done from my understanding right after intake. That's a big part of what intake is. Social work assessment gets done within 72 hours of a patient coming in. And that is when you're asking in your meeting face, ideally you're meeting, fa- meeting face to face with the patient. Um, sometimes I, our unit, that early time frame is a little difficult because of patients refusing meds or not stable on their meds yet. Mm. It's very, very difficult to get, to talk clearly with someone. Right. We'll always try. Um, but sometimes you do have to do blind assessments because I mean, a patient is aggressive or telling you to F off because you're, you're, so you can do it without ever seeing the patient. You, because you're using other sources of information. Okay. Yep. Our goal is that we only do, I mean, you, you, that you are doing face-to-face assessments. Sure. You don't want to be doing a blind assessment, but sometimes when it's the safety of staff or um, sure. that you, makes sense. the difficulty of what information you're getting, then it's a different story. So you're asking like what brought them into the hospital? What are the goals they want to work on? Um, any history of suicide attempts, self-harm, aggressive behavior, what um, treatment history do they have? So previous hospitalizations, you're looking at housing because then that helps us formulate discharge planning of, do we need to get them linked to a shelter? Do we need to get them linked to an adult foster care? Um, different things like that. Okay. Unfortunately, like low income housing section eight stuff is not able that, that we are about that we are able to get them linked to unless they're already linked to it. Is it just full or is it just not part a, of it? It's full, but B because of that short time frame. Okay. I've had patient, I've had previous clients who were working on section eight stuff for months. Okay. There was about a year where they weren't pulling names for section eight housing. Wow. Yeah. So you're just looking at the time frame. It's the same thing for like social security too. Um, we can give them resources of how to apply for section eight social security, but we can't really necessarily start that with them. Okay. You can't even start the process with them because once they get started, if they're moving somewhere else, then how is that being transferred oh, over? Okay. What about like unemployment? Is that unemployment is the same thing? It's such a it can be such a long process uh-huh. that we can give them resources if they want to start it over the phone. So it, when they leave the hospital mm-hmm. and they have all those resources, mm-hmm. would they go to outpatient if they need help with that? Then and find a different social worker and outpatient. So it depends on what you're looking at. So typically, when you have Medicaid agencies where and I'm not meaning to stereotype, but typically in my experience, a lot of those patients have Medicaid. Okay. So that is when you'll have a case manager because in order to have Medicaid, a Medicaid psychiatry services, you have to have a case manager. Okay. So that case manager is going to be helping with section eight unemployment, food stamps, EBT, things that's like that. That's kind of that. a cool requirement of Medicaid. Actually. Yeah, absolutely. That's where I got, that's where I got all my patients okay. or previous clients. 
So also in that assessment, you are looking at any history of abuse, neglect, or domestic violence. So you're looking at substance use history because then we do, do we need to refer out to substance use treatment? Um, but then you're also looking at um, like strengths and limitations, which is also part of our treatment planning. Because if I have a patient telling me I should not, I should not have been in the hospital, I don't know why I'm here, I, I'm understanding that they have pretty poor insight. There's limited insight into why they're in the hospital. They're saying that they don't want to do outpatient treatment. They don't need medications. They don't need to be here. They also have can have pretty low motivation for treatment. Um, so on our treatment plan is when it's basically like a very um, brief outline of what their treatment is going to look at the, like at the hospital. Okay. What are their medical concerns? What are their medical diagnoses from their health history and physical? What are their psychiatric diagnoses? Do you see those the psychiatric diagnoses? Mm-hmm. And I will, we explain them to patients. Our goal you is, do? yes, oh, it's God. a, it's a newer thing. Um, luckily we've been very fortunate to have a new clinical services director who I absolutely love cool. and is very much on board of like and pushing like treatment team meetings. That's one of my biggest complaints on inpatient is that we are not explaining them what's going on with their mental mm-hmm. health and their medication. Yes. Like how would anyone take it or understand or want to be involved if they're not offered to be involved? Yes. <laughs> so, but also there's this difficulty of like, if I have a patient who's already very aggressive and mm-hmm. agitated, I'm not going to tell them that their diagnosis that they don't agree with. Sure. So everything's I like mean, kind of case. That's discretion of being a social worker. Yes, Hopefully absolutely. You have it by the time you go through that yeah, program. <laughs> absolutely. So, um, I am, I am trying to take the time to explain their diagnoses and what are their psychiatric problems that they're working on while they're in the hospital. Can you do meds at all or is that nursing? So. That's nursing. Okay. Yeah. Because their medications are not on their treatment plan because those change. Okay. Yeah. So, and then when you flip over the treatment plan, it's like, what are their strengths and limitations? So are there, I mean, are there strengths, their religious affiliation? Is it work skills? special hobbies and interests, good motivation, good um, insight. Do you share that with them? Yep, absolutely. I will start also- with strengths, right? What? You always start with strengths? Always start with strengths. Uh-huh. We, do a compl- we do a compliment sandwich. Cool. I will also get a patient involved, like, what do you think is a strength for you? What is going to help you reach your goals? What are your protective factors? Is it supportive family and friends? Is it ability to verbalize feelings? Do you work? Do you live by yourself? Oh, you've, you've capable of independent living. It's You're looking for these. And then also you have limitations. And so I'll really phrase these with someone like, these are the goals that you're working on because your limitations are not always going to be your limitations. Some are lifelong. If you're, if you have a physical disability that it might be life. Well. Sure. But if you're, if your limitation is poor coping skills or po- poor social supports, no access to medications, even medication non-compliance, which is a major of what we see, mm-hmm. um, sure. we can point those out and say, you may not agree, but these are the limitations that you have that is limiting your treatment or limiting your outcome and increasing your hospital recidivism, which is such a fancy word I love to say. And no, it actually is way more comprehensive. So from the tech side, mm-hmm. the mental health technician side, we don't see any of this. Yeah. So all the background work you do, like I literally thought you just found them group homes and mm-hmm. did discharge. Yeah. Which it sounds like kind of, but not really, there's a lot more that you're doing with treatment. Yeah. And because you're also looking at what are their requirements for discharge? And the big ones we always hit is like no suicidal or homicidal ideation. So even, and everyone kind of does this a little different. I will always select that because even if someone does not come in with suicidal or homicidal ideation, we're still doing a risk assessment to make sure they don't have that when they leave. We're making sure they have a reduction of target symptoms. So that could be anything from anxiety to full delusions, paranoia, psychosis. And then you're looking at improvement in mood, thinking and behavior. And a lot of these things are not full eliminations. No, you are not going to. Yeah, absolutely. You are not reasonably going to eliminate someone's full paranoia or 
Or suicidal ideation, really. Absolutely. Anything in a week. That's why a lot of it is reduction. Mm -hmm. um, and then a verbal commitment to aftercare. So that is one of our discharge requirements. Because you a verbal commitment? Yeah. What is the actual commitment behind that that you have to follow? Is it legal? They, no, no, no. They have to say, I literally just have to tell them, you have to tell me that you were, you understand that you have an appointment. Do you wink at them then? <laughs> so I'm never <laughs> saying, like, and I will explain it. If someone's very, very adamant against them or against that and they don't have a court order, I will say, I don't hold your hand to go to this appointment. I will set you up for success. Mm. I will set you that up appointment for you. So you just have to go or answer the phone. They will call you. But at least I want to give them the tools to utilize, utilize right. these things. And then when you're looking at like kind of housing in their aftercare plan, what is that? Is that returning to home? Is that alternative living? Is that a partial hospitalization program, which is like a step down program? So what's the difference mm -hmm. between outpatient and partial hospitalization? So when you're looking at it, kind of like the state, the scale of intensity. Um, that's exactly what I wanted. Yes. Thank you. Inpatient hospital is kind of the higher end. Mm -hmm, for sure. Then... You have in the middle, which is partial hospitalization. So that's a day program. So we have one at the hospital. A couple different places have them. Court ordered, I'm guessing? No, nope, it can be. Mostly wow. it's voluntary. Cool. A lot of PHPs don't accept court ordered. Oh. And it is a step down program. A lot of our kids use it specifically. Um, and it is basically an eight to three program during the day. You see it's a lot of similar programming, social work groups, rec therapy groups, nursing groups, the kids, they have time to do their schoolwork. Cool. Um, that's probably good for them. Yeah. So like and I, I used to help with the adolescent PHP groups. And then they're also seeing, they're having medication appointments, but it's typically every three days instead okay. of every day, because by that point, the goal is that they're stable. Right. So that's reasonable. Yeah. So, and then at those appointments is when the doctor's also saying, okay, I think you can be discharged in this many days. So do they see a doctor through the PHP program? Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it's, it's right in there. So like a lot of our, so some of our inpatient doctors are also PHP doctors. Of course. Typically, it can be about a two to three week program, but can, same thing as inpatient can be shorter or longer, depending on how they're doing. Okay. You don't have to be stepping down from inpatient to be a, to be part of a PHP program. I had a lot of clients when I did um, Medicaid case management who were just having being suicidal, not being suicidal, but having suicidal ideations, not to the full extent of inpatient that the hospital had determined, but needed some extra things. So they went to PHP program. Okay. If somebody wants to sign up for that, mm -hmm. say someone is having some real issues, but they mm -hmm. don't want to go inpatient. Mm -hmm. Could they just, I mean, how do you get in the end of that program? Do you just call a hospital and inpatient and say, Hey, you kind of have to know who to call, which sucks again. That's a horrible thing to have to say to answer absolutely, that question. <laughs> absolutely. So there is one program that has multiple locations throughout the state. That's kind of the biggest one. All right. Our hospital has one, a couple different like medical hospitals have one. Can you look up PHP program from psych or mental mm -hmm. health? Thing? Literally just like partial hospitalization programs. Well, that's that's the key word you need to search if you need it. <laughs> yeah. Partial hospitalization programs or day programs. I mean, there's one, like I said, one company that has a lot of them. Okay. And that's, and they accept a lot of insurances because you're also thinking about like what insurance does someone have? Right. Um, which is something that I never like to have to worry about right. because I don't even know my own insurance, let yeah. alone like having to know what agencies are accepting others. It's a very weird. That's the system we live in, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. Though. So you got to deal with that shit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so it's, an, it's a nice program because a lot of people, especially parents, when you're looking at kids, mostly you're having kids in partial hospitalization because when we were doing, when we had people like COVID school, summer, Parents are not comfortable leaving their kid home if they've right. just been hospitalized for trying to kill themselves. It totally makes sense. So that is a big step. The only difficult that you, difficult thing that you can have is it can be a, a cycle. So I've seen it both on the adult and the kids where kid, they're in PHP for a little bit and then they become inpatient and then they go back to P, the same PHP and they become lifestyle, inpatient. Honestly. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But when you have 
not a lot of social, like family or social supports. And most of it's through that PHP program or the staff, then you, you cling on to that. Yeah. And so like today I had to discharge a person that came from our PHP and want to go back there, but she had been in PHP for three weeks Okay. and was very upset that she couldn't go back there, but it was a doctor's determination that she's just going to become a cycle mm-hmm. because she has a lot of trauma and not a lot of supports. And that's where it's going to come through. Can that be, do you think that can be managed through good therapy over, I don't know, a decent amount of time? Yeah. I mean, when you've, if you're doing DBT or dialectical behavior therapy, you're doing CBT kind of behavioral therapy, those can be managed, but it's not as intensive. So outpatient is kind of, is definitely less intense. That's what I just, Mm -hmm. I hate that we see the cycle Mm -hmm. and I don't know what to do to fix that. I'm Mm -hmm. like, I don't want to be a part of this industry if I can't, you know, help with ending the cycle for Mm -hmm. some people. Like there has to be a way. Is there? I don't know. I don't know. And honestly, the biggest, the two biggest factors I have seen that have contributed to hospital recidivism is unsupportive family and friends. Um, and that medication non-compliance though, especially on our unit, those are the two biggest things. So it isn't drug or alcohol. That's surprising to me. No, because we're not a substance use rehab. Okay. We do get a lot of patients who have a history of substance use. I think those two just go hand in hand, mental health and and drug and and alcohol problems. Then then you're looking at co-occurring disorders, Mm -hmm. but the big thing is those are the big two medication non-compliance and unsupportive family and friends or a lack of supports. Because if you're relying on yourself, hundred percent. That's never going to work. No, it's mm-hmm. not like anything you do. Mm-hmm. You can't do it on your own. Like, yeah. So I have a question then. Mm-hmm. This is an overarching question because I do want to get into social work mm-hmm. and I genuinely want to make differences that, that are going to help people mm-hmm. fundamentally, or I don't want to be in it. Mm-hmm. Like I'll go sell cars again. Yeah. And I say that morbidly, but at least when I was selling cars, I felt like I was helping people. Yeah. Okay. What do you think could be done to make it better for, to, to break that loop or mm-hmm. even just to give people just to break the loop mm-hmm. and give people genuine good support because the hospital, I don't think it helps more than 10% mm-hmm. of people that come in there. I really don't. Yeah. I think it's hard. So I think you're kind of looking at, I think you have, I have to look at it at two different angles okay. and through inpatient and then for outpatient Yeah, and, and from working both sides. I want to work outpatient next. So yeah. I have that perspective as well. Yeah. For inpatient, I think for the people that it does help, it does help. Those are the people that say, I, I know I needed help. Mm-hmm. And I needed my medication or I needed my medication to change. And this is the fastest way that I'm going to get that. Yeah. A hundred percent. That's going to help. It does help people. And unfortunately, and kind of our unit kind of scares people straight. Oh, which for is sure. Absolutely fucking terrifying. Yeah. We're on the adult woman's unit and it's, it's just a bag of everything all mixed together. Yeah, absolutely. No, we're you know, very high acuity. Psychosis. Yeah. Yeah. We're very high acuity and the largest, one of the largest size units in the state. I didn't know that. Actually. Yeah. I learned that a couple of weeks ago, which is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So when you're looking at inpatient, I think the people that it does help, it does help. And like you said, but I mean, also we have a lot of people that this is the level that is going to help. Yeah. Some people need that. Yes. Beyond scared straight kind of shit. Yes. But and, what, what mm-hmm. percentage do you think actually genuinely get that and maybe don't possibly don't come back in a, in a, I would say about 25%. You think it's that many? I do. Okay. That's optimistic. Um, yeah, I try because I also have to, like you said, I have to know that I have to think that I'm helping someone. And even if that's one person on my caseload, I'll take it. Like I know in my last batch of caseload exactly who knew they needed to be there and didn't want to come back. Mm-hmm. But a lot of, especially on our unit, I think you're going to see that less 
or see that more on the less acute units is you are having, you are, you are with people that it is lifelong mental illness, which is very, very, very hard thing to admit to yourself. Yeah. And so a patient to admit them some to themselves because you want to, you want to live in this world where you don't need medications. Every that's ideal for everyone where you don't need something extra the to function. The patients are the worst stigmatiz- stigmatizers of medication. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the yeah. amount of times where I wanted to look at a patient and be like, you are on the same medications as I am. Okay. This is not a bad thing. And just trying to explain to someone, like, would you look at someone less than who is diabetic and needed insulin? It's the same thing, but for your brain. That's very difficult. It's hard to explain it. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's there's such a stigma. Absolutely. And it's very, and, but also when you're looking at the actual, like the concrete idea of needing medications for the rest of your life, you're also looking at co-pays for psychiatric appointments. Mm-hmm. You are looking at medication yes. costs. Um, luckily, I mean, I have a fairly low copay. My friend has to pay until her deductible like $300 a month for her medication. I won't even get therapy because I have crap insurance right now. Yeah. There's no way I'm going to therapy and paying $150 at a pocket session. Yeah. I And I mean, I'm at 50 and it's not great, but I know I need it. So that's kind of the brick and mortar of the difficulty. So do you think that if this the whole system was more socialized, it would be a lot better? I'm curious. I So I, I lived in Spain for that year. Yeah. I didn't really visit the hospitals mm-hmm. or anything, but everyone has basic health insurance. Yeah. You can get private if you want. Same with Germany. My, mm-hmm. One of my exes um, has amazing dental. Mm-hmm. Health, best healthcare in the world does nothing for it. Yeah. So I was curious. You think that that money would get funneled correctly and it would actually be better? That's would, the goal. Yeah. The goal, right? Yeah. That's the hope. And I think that, I think there also needs to be a general idea that there needs to be an even balance of funding for physical health versus mental health. Sure. Um, because especially when you're looking at like ACEs and adverse childhood experiences, there is a direct correlation between adverse childhood experiences and physical illness down the line. I Ep- mean, epigenetics, a hundred percent about it with Donna in my last episode. Yeah, absolutely. And so like when there is this connection, trying to utilize that and catch that and address it early childhood trauma is going to be better down the line for everyone. Mm-hmm. But that is such a systemic change and such a giant idea shift that it's going to be nearly impossible or so difficult to do that immediately. Well, it won't be immediate. No, 100%. But even so, I actually, I know you said you don't know that much about the old uh, institutions, but I read this book when I first got into psych in the mm-hmm. 1960s. I think the stat, maybe don't quote me on this, but it was 40% of people who go to bed in restraints at an inpatient hospital mm-hmm. every night. Now mm-hmm. I've seen restraints one time be used. Yeah, I've never seen it in the year I I've been know, here. I've told, they've pulled them out before yes. and they don't use them. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because, awesome. And I, I mean, I've also had patients when we do have very aggressive patients, I've had other patients be like, why don't they restrain them? Why don't they medicate them? And I have to also look at them and say, this is a human. Uh huh. Like, and that's that, always when I respond to them. Yeah. What if we did that to you in yes. this situation? Bottom line, this is someone who is very much struggling. Mm-hmm. And I will say the same thing to someone who's 90 versus nine. We will never, and we should never judge people for how they are feeling, what emotion they are feeling, mm-hmm. whether that's happiness, frustration, sadness, anger, anything in a situation. Sometimes we need to work on how we express that message. Yeah, sure. And that's what needs to be adjusted. But judging people for how they're feeling is never going to be, is never should be acceptable, especially when you're looking at a power dynamic between us as staff members and patients. I have had people who've like been like, who have uh, patients who have apologized me for me, for me being, for them being upset. I'm like, I will never tell you, you should not be frustrated when you were in a system where literally almost all your power is taken away. Yeah, literally all your rights. Literally everything. Snapped away unexpectedly. Absolutely. 
will I be a little upset if you punch me? A little bit. Mm-hmm. I'll understand. Yeah. But I'll be a little upset, a little, little, little offended, but I'll understand it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's hard because, I mean, everyone's in full flight or flight or fight. Yeah. And when you don't have anywhere to flight, you're going to fight. Uh-huh. And that's a lot of our patients because a lot of their power and choice making is taken away. And I mean, when you're looking at what could be better for outpatient, I think just access and knowing what is available. Once you get into one agency, then you, it's a little easier, but sure. even knowing how to access these things. So like, I wouldn't know how to access yeah. them, ironically. And um, I've been in mental health for over a year now. And mm-hmm. so it's like, like, I wouldn't know where to go. I would just drive to a, a group home, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. Like, I don't know. Absolutely. And my biggest recommendations is psychology today, that website for finding any therapist, psychologist, really? psychiatrist. It's incredible. I didn't know that. It's how I found mine. Um, because you can select via insurance, gender, city, county, if they have telehealth, if they're in person. And actually telehealth is one of the, as much as it sucks when it was hundred percent telehealth is one of the things that has broken down barriers for so many people Good, because psychiatrists are very hard to come by. So instead of looking for a psychiatrist that's within a 30 minute drive, I can put have patients go to a psychiatrist in Saginaw while they live in Detroit because they have a phone that they can use a telehealth appointment with, which means they're getting psychiatry appointments. That's awesome. When it's everything is telehealth, then you're also looking at a barrier of like who has Wi-Fi, who has smartphones, who has computers. Sure, but then just then, to have the extra access available. Yes. So I think it breaks down barriers for some people and it increases barriers for other. But psychology today is a is a phenomenal, phenomenal resource. Cool. Yeah. I was going to ask you, um, what do you think in your experience mm-hmm. is the most powerful thing you've ever done to make somebody become more self, um, autonomous, I guess, or what was the term you used earlier? Self, like having self-determination. self-determination oh yes. God. What's your best tool as a social worker that you found is the most effective? I think it's just being genuinely honest. Um, and I mean, when you're going through social work education, Boundaries are always pushed. Having boundaries with patients. I was going to ask you that. Too. Yeah. When your story about you being on the same meds as a patient mm-hmm. that actually happened. I haven't told them that. But I mean, do you think that it would have actually helped them to hear that? In Sometimes. That yep. And I think it also depends on who I'm talking to. Sure, if I have sure. a patient that I know is going to throw that back in my face. Again, discretion. Yes. You know, in common sense. Yeah. Um, but I think that in a place where we have a lot of power and patients don't sometimes cutting a little hole in your, in your barrier with someone, it can be very, um, impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, and barriers or boundaries in general is something that I know I struggle with. I struggle with personal boundaries with friends. I do too. And I think that especially with like, with our work family and work friends, we have to rely on each other and have those poor work boundaries, personal boundaries, or else we'd lose our minds. Yeah. But having these moments and like for kids, I've always said, throwing in a sporadic swear word, it makes you seem human and making it not, I mean, as serious as these things are still having them kind of buy into what's going on. So like I have, I mean, I have had moments with patients and wanted to have moments with patients where I'm like, 
you, you are loved and you are cared for. And I am one of those people that I want to see what's best for you. And I've had these like very, I've had these moments with patients where I'm like, I have loved getting to know you and loved her learning your stories and hearing what brings you into the hospital. I don't want to see you back though. Mm-hmm. I will always be here to support you if you need, but uh-huh. I don't want to see you back. And I want to see you use those resources. But I think that these very, these small moments of kind of humanity that we can have with patients can be very impactful in saying that we are, we are no better. And that's actually what, I mean, that's the biggest push that had me getting help for my mental health because I was having patients who were in the hospital for the same things that I was experiencing. Yeah. And I was like, what is this line? Like you were saying, what's the line between inpatient and outpatient? What is this line that determines that this person should be in an inpatient? I just had, I mean, I just had a misfortune. Pati- absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's like who, you know, Yeah. and I had a, I mean, I had a patient who literally was like, I came in, I had to come into the hospital because, um, I had said to somebody like, I was just kind of curious about if I fell asleep and didn't wake up, what would happen? I'm like, how many times have I had that thought and verbalized that there to was, somebody? There was a patient who had a terminal illness yeah. and she said something along those lines mm-hmm. and they put her inpatient. I thought mm-hmm. that was wildly inappropate mm-hmm. for that particular instance, yeah. but so Abs- just be, I don't want to say, be careful what you say. Cause if you're feeling that way yeah. and you're going to act on it, or there's any chance you're gonna hurt yourself. Mm-hmm go and get help, mm-hmm. but just be careful. Cause you might get yourself into a situation you not necessarily might have to mm-hmm. be in. So, yeah. And like, as someone who has a psychiatrist and has an outpatient therapist that I absolutely love and see weekly, like I have had these very serious talks with like my partner and been like, listen, like I have struggled with like passive suicidal ideation for so long in my life. I know where that line is. I know where that point was where I need to be hospitalized. And I will, I know I have that insight to make that decision. Mm-hmm. And I literally was, and I said, I know I, I've worked this system. I love my job. I absolutely, it's my favorite job I've ever had in my life. And I, and I unfortunately think I'm going to be like a four lifer at the That's hospital. All right. That's reassuring to hear. Yes. Honestly. I absolutely adore my job. I think I've had the most impact on my job than I ever have in any previous jobs. Um, I'm surprised to hear that for inpatient. Yeah. And I told, and I looked at him and I said, I, if you ever, I mean, if you petition me without speaking to me first, that's it. Like that is a, that is a like, that is a relationship breaking moment, which, which is a very, very terrifying thought as a person who works in the system. Right. But I mean, I've had one of our old other social worker colleagues who's had to have these conversations, especially with people who have court orders. Like people can see when you, I mean, police officers can see when you have been hospitalized before. So if there is a argument with you and someone who has not been hospitalized, most likely they're going to take the other person's side. How can they see that? If you have a court order, it's on your lien. That list. sucks. Oh, 100%. It's a huge privacy you, barrier. You can't have guns. What about, um, yeah, your guns do get if you're on a court order. all messed up if you get court ordered in the second yeah. hospital. What about the diagnosis? Can the police see that? No. Good. No. That's some privacy, I guess. That's, yeah. But I mean. That uh, seems like a HIPAA breach to me that the cops know. Um, I don't know. It just seems unfair. Your system. Because it's, it's a, because it's a court petition. I guess it makes sense, but then you're institutionalized, you know, mm-hmm. technically, and I mean, quote unquote. Lay people can look that up. When it, you're looking at. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, oh, when you're looking sucks. at court records to a point are public record. And so you can look up county by county if someone has any court history. And that can includes ex- a petition. Can you expunge any of that? You can. Is it how big of a hassle is it? Though? Very difficult. Oh, that's and so I, shitty. And I'm learning um, through our court liaison, it's getting harder and harder to get expunged. <sighs> that sucks. It does. Like, cause like sometimes if it's a one time, if you've been obviously hospitalized here every year, every year, fine. But one time, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just and, think it's a huge and, and that's why I try to explain like if a patient is being threatened, not threatened, that's the wrong word. But if 
the potential of a court order is there or like when we're looking at like ITTs, like an intent to terminate treatment, it is a very, it is a gamble of a paper because you're saying either the doctor is going to discharge me in three days or he's court ordering me. So aren't they always court ordered though when you get in a patient? You are, you are always involuntary, but it's not a court order. Oh, so how do you, un- okay. So how do you stop yourself from getting court order once you get in? So within three days, our court liaison talks to every patient. So you go, pay, you go voluntary. And you go anymore. voluntary. So that won't be a court order anymore. Correct. I it's assume. never a court order. So it's oh. not a court order when you're involuntary. You are okay. just an involuntary patient. Now, do you guys tell them that? The patients and Absolutely. make it very clear? Absolutely. Oh, our court so liaison is very good at that's that. That's more reasonable than my opinion then. Yeah. So you can still have gun rights and everything. If you go in a psych, mm-hmm. patient, psych unit and then you go voluntary. Absolutely. Oh, cool. So everyone... Do that, yes. Because you're going to lose in court anyway. And you're also going to no offense. You absolutely, and you're also going to get discharged faster because then, yes. depending on the co- the county, how often are they having court? Mm-hmm. Is that three or four times a week, or is that once a week? Yeah. If you're looking at like smaller counties, so once someone signs as voluntary, you're basically saying they were voluntarily going to follow the doctor's orders that including that includes taking medication and a medication regimen. Yeah. If a person refuses to sign that paperwork or refuses to take medication after they are voluntary then they can go through court with a court order. You can, you can, you are most likely to be put on what's called a 60, 120. So up to 60 days inpatient on 120 days outpatient. Um, that does not mean patients will stay in for 60 days, but if they go back to a hospital from my understanding or have any interactions with police, social workers, hospital staff that could be due to a medication immediately back in a hospital because they have that court order. So don't get court ordered, people. Don't get don't, court ordered. Don't be a hardhead. It sucks no. when your rights get taken away, but don't hurt yourself even yep. more. And it sucks because I don't want to have to tell patients, like, just play, just just do the motions and play the game. Right, but what so, I, but what sometimes the, they have to. Yeah. And so what I my try and always tell patients, the angle that I do it as is you're already here. Utilize it so you don't have to come back. Uh-huh. Use your group. Use your groups. Get on the same medications. Don't just lie to the doctor and say that your medications are working when they're not, because it means you're not going to take them when you're discharged and then you're going to potentially come right back. Mm-hmm. So that's why I always tell them like, it sucks, but be honest with the doctor. Tell them, tell the doctor if your medications aren't working, participate in groups, even though they can be as someone who runs group, hella boring. <laughs> no, there's some good groups. There are some good groups. There are some be- good people that run good groups, but it's, it's really hard. But I'm like, you utilize this especially with patients have kids show your kids that it's okay to get mental health help because there is still as much as the stigma has decreased in the last couple of years, there is still a hell of a lot of stigma in yeah. a lot of different communities and cultures of getting help in the hospital. There's a ton of stigma. Absolutely. Um, and especially like when you're looking at like demographics of patients too, but I always encourage like, especially moms, like you are showing your kid it's okay to get help because then your kid is going to understand that mental health is just as important as physical health. Mm-hmm. And think about how, if that was, if that was a understanding and like in the norm, how different it would be. Right. I think that that is a big factor into why mental health is so difficult to access. Cool. That's a really good perspective. I'm going to start talking patients. No, really though. Yeah. That's what we're aiming for. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And I also tell like when they're like patients are saying like, I shouldn't be in a hospital or anything like that, or they have these like very negative views. I always try and rephrase it of like, if this was a physical health problem, if you had a broken leg, if you had diabetes, if you had a concussion, or especially if like they're scared of missing work, how would your employer view that? Because it should be the same for mental health. Mm -hmm. It's not always is going to be viewed the same, 
but it should. No, the laws are they can't discriminate against you if you've been an inpatient, right? That's correct. Work or school. From my understanding, yes. That's my understanding as well. Yeah. So that's good at least. Yeah. So I try and provide work letters um, or letter hospitalization that basically just says they were here from this state to this state. And I will make it as detailed as a patient wants. I had a patient who was like, I want, if you can put it in there, I want my diagnoses in there. If you can put that's this in, cool. I want this, I want this, I want this. And some patients, I'm they're just like, I just want you to say what dates I was here and what doctor I was under. And absolutely, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. So it depends on how much people want other people to know, which is absolutely their right. Cool. That's actually, I think you answered my question from earlier. What <laughs> what could be done to fix the, the industry and make sure we don't have repeats? And I think it's not stigmatizing, mm-hmm. you know, and then people will actually force the changes to be made once they realize that they need to be made. And hopefully that'll be made on a less restrictive outpatient basis instead of having to go fully into the hospital. Yeah, I would hope so. Yeah. And I think it's also hard though, when you are looking at patients who we, and I mean, we've both had that have been super stable on their medications for years mm-hmm. and then their medication wasn't strong enough, but ended up being in the hospital for like 10, 12 days yeah. because of doctor issues and doctors being off. But it's hard because it is a doctor's license when they are discharging people. So like the last thing a doctor wants is to say, okay, I'm changing your medication today and you're discharging today because how do we know that they're going to react to that? Right. right? How do we know that that's not going to be too strong of doses and then then they're not going to take it at all. Um, And that's a hard risk. That's a, that's a job I never want to have to make that full decision. Yeah. There are three jobs I never want to have in our hospital is that it's a psychiatrist our recipient rights and our scheduler. (laughs) I never want those three jobs. Yeah. The, uh, the recipient rights, for anyone who doesn't know, you can file a rights complaint oh, okay. if you think your rights have been violated. And then the recipient's rights guy has to go and check every single rights mm-hmm. thing every day. Somebody smashed a French toast the other day and put it in the recipient's rights box. And I thought it was so <gasps> funny. <laughs> Someone did try and jump the desk and attack him today. So yeah, that was that a happens. fun time. But that's really good advice. And I don't mean, so I, in other episodes, I've talked about the psychiatrist and the system almost encourages them to take on more patients than they can take. Mm-hmm. And they have all the liability. So I understand 100%. exactly why they're doing, how they're doing it yeah. and everything. So. And like, I, I think it's a, I think patients see a very harsh side of the doctor. And I think almost everyone in our hospital sees a very harsh side of the doctor. That's true. Because patients see them for five minutes and the doctors just kind of prescribe or change. Mm -hmm. Luckily being able to work with our doctors as close as I have been, I see a very different side where he knows he does know what he's doing. So I have a lot of patients like, well, he doesn't listen to me. I'm like, he hears what you're saying. And yes, he asks those same questions every day because those could be side effects of your medication. Yeah, you didn't come in with having paranoia, but could that be a side effect? Absolutely. And so medications are just such a check, like guess and check elementary school math procedure. Yeah, it's hard with the the psych meds, especially. Absolutely. So, I mean, especially when you have patients who like medication that would help with anti-anxiety is going to actually make them more anxious. Everything could be the opposite. Mm -hmm. So medications are just such a like a guess and check that. He can't, I, be, I think, I honestly, I genuinely think if our doctors could spend 30 minutes with every patient, they would. Do you really? Absolutely. Cool. So I haven't seen that side of our mm-hmm. doctors. And I honestly think because, I mean, I have had our doctors, well, after a patient leaves, been like, tell me about them. Where do you think they are? Especially now after having this close relationship with our doctor, he's been able to come to me and say, what do you, where, who do you think is ready? Because I do see them at a different angle than what he sees them. That's cool. I'd love to be in that role. Absolutely. And be able to say, hey, I think this person is going to be ready in the next mm. couple of days as long as their medications are going well. Do we also have doctors who won't discharge because of ego bruising? Absolutely. Insurance money, cough, cough. Yeah. And having a doctor who a patient got upset when he was meeting with, when she was meeting with him because she thought she was being discharged and so she started crying and he told me that he wouldn't discharge the next day if she started crying again, Jeez. absolutely got me pissed off. 
But then talking to them later and explaining what's going on can give a different angle because they're just seeing such a, such, such a small moment of time. And sometimes that's just is what they can only be able to see. That's how the system, you know, they have so many patients. But it sucks. It's not ideal. Cool. Well, this has been great. Do you have anything else you want to add in social work or any advice to anyone with mental health struggles or who want to go into social work or anything at all in this field? Um, as someone who has always struggled with it, do not hesitate to like lean on your supports. And for me, as someone who struggled with like what is like utilizing my coping skills, I've always been insightful to the point of like detriment where I'm like, <laughs> oh, I'm like I'm I know what is my problem. So I don't need help for it because I know what it is. Um, and so <laughs> I totally understand that. Oh, a hundred percent. So like utilizing your coping skills, but are, that are actually coping skills and not avoidance skills is also something that yes, I'm. Yes, there are different types of coping. Avoiding yes. is not great coping skills. Yes. And a lot of like my quote unquote, like advice or like what I'm working on with patients is literally stuff that I'm actively working on now. Like me- like I am also someone who like minimizes my accomplishments and maximizes my faults, which is so many of our patients and just like people we interact with. And I also like just people in our field, just like staff, because I like try also try to explain this to patients. Like our jobs are, we're not in this for the money by any means. Uh Absolutely not. As someone who has my master's and is still kind of living paycheck to paycheck with no children, like, is terrifying. Yeah. I spend way too much money on my dog, but, like, that's a a whole other topic. He has health issues. Oh, I do. Or he does. He has behavior (laughs) issues. That health. Oh, my God. He's on DO at daycare. But he also doesn't need to go to daycare. But anyway, like, trying to do these things and, like, we are not in this for the money. Like, we are in this to genuinely help people. And I think those are the people you need in this field. And like when trying to explain to patients, like I've had patients yell at me, like, why are you doing this? Like what, this is a horrible place to work. I'm oh, like, and like, wouldn't you want me to be here to try and help you instead of someone who's That's like, just say, hates their job. Better this asshole than some other asshole. Absolutely. <laughs> and so like, just like my biggest advice is like, don't hesitate. Like I, I have no qualms, whatever that word is. Um, (laughs) I have no issues talking about my mental health. As soon as I got my diagnosis, like I'm bipolar too. I have no hesitate, like hesitation telling that obviously not to patients, but like sometimes it could be a moment where I'm like, I struggle with the same thing you struggle Mm -hmm. with. And I've had patients who like are, they think that there's such, there's, there can be such a divide between social work or therapy and clients or patients. Um, because you're, because people think that we're perfect and by God, we're nowhere near perfect. And I think honestly, the people that work in mental health fields have the most Issue. mental health problems. Yeah, that's why we do it. Absolutely. Why else do people get into and psychology? Absolutely. And like, that's why that's part the biggest reason I got into treating my own mental health is because I knew I could, I should be here. I should have been hospitalized as a kid, a hundred, like a hundred percent. And I totally, th- I look back now. I'm like, God, I probably could have been. Oh, a hundred percent. And like, this is just something that I'm opening up with my mom about. And my mom is a pediatrician who does refer patients to our hospital in general. And so she is also like getting her own mental health in check and just having this accountability of someone else. Like, okay, like we're both taking our medications and we both need therapy and finding that person that you can be a hundred percent candid with. It has been the biggest benefit to me. And for me, that's one of like one of my best work friends. We have the same diagnosis and we have a lot of the same symptoms being able to really keep in check of like, Hey, I think 
I'm, I think I'm becoming manic again. What do you think? Do you think this is just behavioral? Again, that's something I struggle with personally is like, what is the line of like behavior and my mania or my depression? Um, that's hard for anyone though. Yeah. And so trying to figure out this line of like behavior versus psychology and like mental illness mm -hmm. is very difficult for me, but like just finding those people that like you can a hundred percent utilize. And honestly, for me, I found most of those people through work, like my job and through work. It's the reason I stayed on our unit. I've, I'm sure I've told you before, but um, having my internship with kids and adolescents, I had no intention of working with adults. I was supposed to be on our unit for two weeks and move back. And after two weeks, I said, absolutely not. I'm staying because I love our staff. Um, they want me to, they asked if I want to move upstairs. I'm like, mm, I kind of mm. like our, you know? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like it, a family. Absolutely. Like, and our staff are so such a close knit group of people because it's almost like collective trauma. Yeah. <laughs> like we just have collective trauma from our unit and from the shit we see every day. And it's just mind blowing to me sometimes where I do work in this job. And when I got this job, my dad genuinely was like, I'm very excited. You're in a safe job now. As opposed to like home. <laughs> I, was, I know. I was like, dad, I'm my more the complete opposite. I know. And I'm like, dad, I'm more likely to get punched now than like ever before. <laughs> but like we are, I, I mean, I know and almost every staff member on my, on this unit has my back and like, will protect me and be there for me. And it's just, a nice feeling, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Even like the campfire on Saturday and like being able to see people outside of work and uh -huh. having these like in-depth conversations. Like I like got emotional on Saturday because like, it's such a genuine feeling and genuine collective like love for each other. And like what we do that you have this commonality that it's very difficult to find elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I loved this conversation. I'm very happy. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Let's say bye to everyone. Bye. <laughs> hey, guys. I just want to jump in for one last second. Thank you so much for listening to episode 10. Um, if you guys have any questions, please contact me on my Instagram. It's at a driftproof podcast. Um, and then also, if you have any questions or anything, check out the show notes and check out the resources I posted at the bottom. So thank you guys so much. I hope you learned just as much about social work from Sophia as I did. And you guys have a great day. I will see you again on Monday.